Today's podcast is brought to you by Horizons Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation ETF, which trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol HRAA and is sub-advised by Resolve Asset Management. HRAA is an alternative fund whose investment objective is to seek long-term capital appreciation by investing directly or indirectly in major global asset classes, including, but not limited to, equity indices, fixed income indices, interest rates, commodities, and currencies. HRAA gains exposure to these asset classes by investing in derivative instruments that may include future contracts and forward agreements and securities. HRAA will take long or short positions, using up to a maximum of three times leverage in asset classes such as equity indices and fixed income asset classes, commodities, currencies, volatility indices, and other alternative asset classes. HRAA could provide balance to your portfolio by harnessing three unique investment styles. The first is an actively managed global risk parity portfolio to provide maximally diversified global exposure in optimal risk balance. The second is a proprietary systematic global macro process that attempts to profit from short-term market moves, going both long and short on more than 50 global markets. Finally, HRAA uses a dynamic tail protection overlay that attempts to profit from large moves in volatility markets. To learn more about this, please visit www.horizonsetfs.com HRAA to read about the ETF's investment objectives and important disclaimers about the risks associated with an investment in the ETF. Hello and welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everything in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. All right, all right, all right, we're live. Well, gentlemen, happy Friday. What's everybody drinking? Happy Friday. The stiffest coffee I can find. Yeah, you guys suck. Got all my, right. got so my berry the LaCroix four of right us here. Are drinking. That's all right. Corey's going to excuse that he's got a big drinking night ahead of him with, the, what is it, Celtic Soccer Gala or something Gale, like that? Gaelic Football Gala. Pretty close. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's close. Kind of, you know, kind of the same Which thing. is sort of Celtic Soccer. Uh, before I introduce everybody, pick up on the bike, which doesn't go that well after after a large right. number of beverages. Yeah, don't don't uh, drink and bike. Um, before we do get started, though, I just want to do the uh, quick disclaimer. I remind everybody that uh, this is purely for educational entertainment purposes only. This is not investment advice. Do not take advice from four dudes. At least two out of the four dudes that are drinking here on a Friday night. But hopefully, everybody gets something out of it. That's uh, that doesn't get him into trouble, especially in the space that we're going to be talking about today. Um, so why don't we uh, uh, get started? Ben, Scott, uh, thank you so much for joining Resolve. Corey, thanks for pinch hitting. Uh, Adam had to bow out last minute, so I really appreciate your help on this. I know that this is an area that you've been interested in for a while. Uh, had it, Corey had a couple of great episodes with Ben in his podcast, uh, Flirting with Models. So if anybody um, wants to kind of fill up their understanding what Ben and the team does, you can go visit um, his website and listen to those podcasts. But why don't we get started um, with uh, Ben and uh, Scott. Why don't you guys tell us a little bit about your background. You guys run quantitative volatility research advisors, QVR advisors. Um, Maybe uh, give us a little bit of background and a little bit about the firm. Sure. Sure. 
Go ahead, Ben. Yeah, no, my name's Ben. I've been uh, been in the markets for a long time. I worked at uh, on Wells Fargo Prop. Uh, did a couple other things in the meantime. Run. Uh, I have a PhD in econ. Uh, QVR. We started in 2017 uh, out in San Francisco, uh, and it's uh, it's been a fun ride. We do. We think of us as a boutique asset management firm focused on derivatives and option strategies. About half of the business is things you would think of as absolute return hedge fund uh, strategies, and uh, the other half of the firm bespoke institutional solutions focused on overlays and hedging and things of that nature. And hello, everyone. My name is Scott Maydell, Head of Business Development at QBR Advisors. I uh, started my trading career for about 15 years back at First Quadrant in the mid-2000s, spent quite a long time at Russell Investments, was at some places short, briefly before and after that, uh, and transitioned over to the business development side uh, for QB Advisor, for QBR Advisors working for Ben recently back in 2020. Beautiful, beautiful. Now, Corey, everybody knows you. Yeah, I don't have to give an intro. <laughs> no, you're good. But you know what? Before I start, Mike's going to kill me if I don't do this. Make sure everybody here, if you like the content, please like, hit the like button, share, comment. We're live, so we'll be taking questions as uh, as we go through the podcast. Um, so I'd really appreciate it if you like the content, do what you can. All right, Corey, I think we discussed some interesting topics to start with. Why don't you, yeah, uh, you know, I, I actually hit before we... Went live here back in the, the digital green room. I hit pause on one conversation because it's where I wanted to start. I was personally professing the pain that I felt going into quarter end in my portfolio and how that always seems to be just the luck of a draw going into quarter end. But we started talking about yesterday in particular, Ben, this one trade that I feel like has been well known, starting to light up a lot of Twitter discussion, which is the quarterly rebalance of the JP Morgan hedged equity fund. And I wanted to get some color from you as to A, for those who don't know, what is this fund? What is it doing? And then B, why has this become such a well-discussed, well-known trade? And what opportunities is it creating in the market? Sure. So, you know, the the fund um, is a hedged equity fund. And what they mean by that is Lots of little details, but basically it's equity it's equity index beta, passive equity index beta with a put spread collar overlay, right? So a, a put spread collar is a popular um, type of hedge or anyway type of option overlay for an equity portfolio where let's say I own some equities, uh, I might sell a call, uh, collect some premium for that and use that premium to go buy a put spread that gives me some protection against the market falling that option structure together is going to have some short exposure to the market. So that's going to lower the overall beta of my equity portfolio from one to depends on what it was, maybe 60 or maybe, maybe 50 depends on the strikes and so forth. Initially when I, when I set up that hedge and then, uh, and then in this case, uh, it, we're just going to hold that put spread collar to expiration. We're going to enter into a new one and it's going to alter the the shape of my uh, or of their equity risk return distribution, right? They're going to have capped upside. If the equity market rallies a ton, they're going to give up some of that upside because they're short the call. 
um, if the equity market sells off enough, they'll benefit at least to some extent from that from that put spread. And really, the, only, the, the reason why anybody cares about this is just because the fund has been well marketed and has been popular and is now really, really big. Right. So it's, a, I think, $18 billion or so notional fund. And like a lot of these overlay style products, you know, the end user here is typically uh, high net worth individuals, ordinary individuals, uh, RIAs. The simplicity is a, is a focus of these kind of products. They're not trying to do really complicated stuff and have lots of positions, right? They just want to be able to explain it to you really easily. And so there, at any one time, there is just this equity exposure and this big put spread collar. And it has, and it's a very, very large position in terms of the size of the options in that put spread collar. And then once a quarter, that has to be rolled. And the size of that transaction to roll that put spread collar you know, from an options market perspective is extremely large. And what happens when that trade is rolled really de- depends and what kind of market impact it has really depends on uh, what the path of the market has been, right? So let's take the example of this last, uh, of this last week. The, uh, the upside call strike, I think, was 4430 on the structure that was in that fund. The S&P was below 4430 coming into expiration, and so that means the, but not sufficiently far below, I think the put strikes, I forget exactly what the put strikes were, but they were a ways down, right? So the whole structure is just out of the money and worthless. And so in the role of this, of this trade, um, JP Morgan is going to have to go to their brokers and say, okay, we want to quote a new structure. And this new structure, by the way, it's like a, it's like a 50 Delta or a 60 Delta caller. So it's, it's a sale of $11 billion of market exposure to go and do that, Right. And that's a lot of equity exposure. It's not necessarily a lot of equity exposure to enter into over the course of a month or over the course of a week or something, but it's a whole lot of equity exposure to enter into just on a trade where you call up your brokers and you say, hi, I'd like to buy $11 or sell $11 million, a billion dollars of stock, right? Uh, And that's why the trade gets exciting, right? And so then you get all this, the issues around, okay, when are they going to quote this? How bit, you know, when's it going to come? When's that Delta going to get hit the market and everybody's speculating about it and so forth. Anyway, long story short, big lumpy, huge lumpy transactions occurring that have big impacts on exposure sold in the market. So I sort of imagine there's a, there's maybe three sorts of impacts. One, depending on the path dependency, are the market makers having to take off any delta from hedging the prior exposure that's now expiring? Two, what do the market makers have to do to hedge the new exposure? So that's all happening sort of in in the delta one space, right? What's happening, the impact to the S&P 500 predominantly. I'd be also interested in knowing what's happening to the volatility surface itself. I mean, are you seeing, I mean, because these are very predictable strikes now. Yep. Are you seeing significant kinks at this point in the surface? Yeah. So, so the, the way that this works, right, is um, in some sense, people will say, I think generally correctly, that there isn't usually that much volatility market impact of the trade when it is quoted and executed um, for these kind of large predictable role trades. And that's true. And that's sort of what the brokers pitch to why should, should you execute this way, right? They say, look, we have a lot of transparency into what the trade's going to be, and therefore we can be ready for it. Um, and the, and the, 
the term, you know, used within banks is, you know, accumulation of inventory and in anticipation of potential customer demand, (laughs) right? Uh, And interpret that as you you may. Uh, So, of course, right, what happens is the volatility surface shifts in anticipation of this trade coming in as people accumulate the inventory that they need to to be in a position to then execute this huge transaction, right? Um, And there's nothing really nefarious about that. That's just a reality of like, if somebody wants to execute this massive transaction in these kind of markets, somebody's going to have to be able to facilitate that and, and work into those positions over time. So yes, you do see, you do see uh, the, the skew surface shifting in the maturity that they're going to be trading uh, increasingly. So as, as the strike ranges become increasingly clear. So go ahead, Rodrigo. No, I just add, so is the this surface shifting a fairly predictable movement that market makers or you know alpha generating managers like you can very clearly snipe on a quarterly basis or is oh. it always you know i mean you, you talked about how it all depends on what the path of the market was what the positions are but is there some sort of modeling that that allows you to take advantage of that or is it so different every quarter that it's difficult to it is certainly the kind of thing that market makers and volatility arbitrageurs uh, attempt to do, right? It's And it's their attempt to be able to provide the liquidity to these kind of transactions that has to occur, right? It doesn't mean it's easy because you don't know, right, what they're going to do is they're going to trade a 95%, 80% put spread and sell the call that makes that structure premium neutral. And you don't know what strike that's going to be in advance, right? So you can't come in two weeks before and just do exactly the opposite of the trade that you know they're going to do and have it, right? What you can do is start to work into a range of exposure that's re- probabilistically reflective of what they're going to need to do and, and do that more and more and more the closer you get and then, you know, and, and so forth. And then what if the market moves a whole lot and all of a sudden you're way off center on the type of exposure that you have and so forth, right? So it's like everything else, it's a, um, it's the, the, it's a, a risk-reward game. Now, I feel like we've seen this game play out over and over and over again, right? These the fun gets popular, it gets massive, it starts doing a fairly predictable trade that most people know. Like I remember Good Harbor was one from a systematic trend perspective back in the day. Then you had the uh, the TVIX and, you know, the Balmageddon period where, you know, that became a predictable role that people took advantage of. Do you feel like this type of fund has a, could have a similar, you know, you know, black swan event structural impact in the markets that that could destabilize it? Or is it a different beast? Well, I don't think that this is not a black swan type of, of thing, right? I mean, do, when you when you reference something like the 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 VIX ETPs, right, the structure of the position of those VIX ETPs was, um, for example, in XIV's case, right, being short a huge amount of VIX futures, and then having to buy a lot more VIX futures mechanically as volatility went up. And like, that was a very unstable equilibrium when that product got big, right? This kind of product uh, doesn't have those kind of features, right? It's a put spread collar. Um, the against held against equities. Uh, the main thing um, that happens when it gets bigger and bigger and bigger is it has more and more market impact. And uh, commensurately, you know, you can think about how that might affect the uh, return potential of the of that product, right? Relative to alternatives that are smoothing across strikes and maturities and over time and not having that kind of market impact. You're very amicable whenever I talk to you. 
Ben on about this sort of stuff. So I'll just I'll just out and say it. You know, in their prospectus, they say the upside call they're trying to sell is between three and a half and five percent, and they've historically been in that range. And until now. now they're an eighteen billion dollar fund, and I think last quarter's roll. I might be wrong, but I think it was 2.9%. I think this quarter is 3.1% on the upside. So you're seeing them significantly below range, which I would expect is just a market impact issue, right? So anyone entering this fund today is going to be getting much lower upside potential than if they had entered it five years ago when it was a much smaller fund. I've said to a number of people that I think these structures are sort of the the smart beta structures of the 2020s. Everyone went into smart beta in the 2010s because they liked the concept. It got too crowded and none of the factors played out well. I would argue I'm seeing so much money moving into this, whether it's the hedged equity funds or the buffered note ETFs or similar structured products. And I'd love your color on the structured product side that I think people are ultimately going to be disappointed with the upside return potential they're going to capture here. Are you seeing things any differently? Yeah, no, I think that that's right. I think that um, part of it comes back to, again, the way products are marketed and the way that they're ex- that options are explained versus sometimes the more nuanced reality, right? So usually a put spread caller, the reason that these things are are popular is they're pitched as a zero cost hedge, like this kind of, of, uh, same premium on the call and the put spread. Right. And, you know, while they are a zero net premium outlay initially hedge, uh, zero cost, I think is a very misleading way of explaining this, right? Because if you own equities, your counterfactual, your baseline, right. As you experience the returns of the equity market. And if you put on a zero cost hedge, but by the way, it caps out your upside over a quarter at 3%, um, if the equity market goes up 7%, that wasn't zero cost. That was 4% you lost, right? And also, by the way, um, this is a, people think it's a hedge, you're buying optionality kind of, you're not. These products actually are short optionality, a put spread caller, right? In In the, and it depends on the path and what, but take, for example, Let's say you, you have that 7% rally and you only make three instead of making seven. And then next quarter, the market sells off 7%. Well, you're, you, you, sold, you bought a 95, 80 put spread. So you made two points back on your put spread. Um, but you still, uh, so, you, so you lost five, right? So you, you, what did that work out? You actually lost money relative to just having been long the equity market. Well, right. what's interesting is uh, I was uh, talking to the guys at Standpoint just because we had uh, a podcast last week. Just I was ranting about the fact that a lot of these hedge funds are really just a low volatility S&P. And he sent me this chart of the JP Morgan hedge equity fund against 60% SPY, 40% cash. And they're identical, like identical, right? So what's interesting is you talked earlier about how a lot of advisors like to have a simplicity and a simple role structure. I mean, you, you honestly can't get simpler than 60% SPY, uh, 40% cash versus the simplicity of this, you know, options overlay. It's, it's kind of crazy how popular it's gotten for what it delivers. Yeah. Well, because just, because that opportunity cost is key, right? To understand. I would just add to that by saying, if we take it up a few thousand more feet and possibly talk about the history, you know, of the space, you know, 
you wanted to get into that, I mean, a little bit that you could talk about is the whole idea of marketing these types of strategies, whether it be a put spread caller, uh, like with what JP Morgan's doing, or whether it be overriding or a cash secure put writing strategy. If you look at these strategies pre GFC, historically, they looked really, really good. And that upside cap, you know, specifically on the JP Morgan type of structure would be fairly high. That's come down over time. If you looked at the premium that you were bringing in for overriding or a cash secure put writing, those premium uh, premiums on those options were actually pretty reasonable. Uh, but post GFC, what we saw is just a lot of consultants, a lot of you know a lot of consultants putting forth, and a lot of institutional investors, and certainly high net worth guys as well, just looking for defensive equity, low volatility equity solutions makes sense. I mean, post GFC, I mean, that's certainly a lot of people would probably think that way. Uh, so we've seen, obviously we've seen a lot of money come into that space. Um, JP Morgan is, you know, this fund has been a big you know, beneficiary of that. There's plenty of other firms that have done very, very well with very good marketing. Um, the space generally markets this as defensive equity or low volatility equity, but there's a price to pay for that, right? When, when, the, when the entire space, uh, increases many times over, uh, it's going to fundamentally change the you know, value proposition. Well, I want to actually want to keep pulling on that sort of like reflexivity thread a little bit, Scott, right? It's going to, when you have people pouring money into a space, it's going to impact the underlying market itself. Um, I would love, and either of you please comment on this, to get a better picture of if this trade continues to grow, what do you think it would do to things like skewness? What do you think it would do to things like the VIX term structure? Would we expect structural changes as long as this trade remains as big as it is or, or continues to get bigger as a complex? Yeah, I mean, I would say that, first of all, this trade, it's certain, certainly not just this uh, this one particular thing that JP Morgan is doing, right? It's a, a whole complex of... Um, of selling volatility, you know, relatively near the money upside, for example, call overwriting, um, which as made, Scott Maydell pointed out, right, has become wildly popular among big institutions. Um, and it has had a huge impact, right? I mean, one, one nice thing, right, if, when you think about factor investing and you compare it to derivatives markets, with factor investing, questions about the impact of AUM growth and changes in the market are hard because you, maybe you can measure the inflows, but like you can't necessarily measure, you can look and say, Oh, value hasn't been working as well. Or you can look and say quality hasn't been working as well or whatever it is, but you don't have an intermediate point to point to. Is it luck? Is it size? Is it what, how do you really prove this stuff out in derivatives? You can just go look at the price, <laughs> right? Because we have vol surfaces and when everybody comes in and does a particular set of trades it just changes the ball surface right so i'm i think uh i think we know how to do screen share maybe scott Maydell can pull up, try to bring it up. Yeah, the, the, the structure the by regime um scott i think you know which one i'm talking about but you know when you when you think back of what did the equity index volatility term structure look like um in the pre-08 regime versus recently versus some other other regimes First of all, if you go back to what the world used to look like when things were kind of quiet outside of a crisis environment, like that 2002 to 2007 regime, that's the blue line there. You know, vol term structures used to be kind of 15 or so in front, 
you know, some mild upward slope and then relatively flat out to the back, right? Um, then you had, of course, 2008 and vol went up a lot. And we all remember the, those days, 2009 to 2012, you had this post-GFC elevated risk premium environment. But then really where we've come back into now in this red line, right, compare the red line and the blue line, right? 2013 to 2021, broadly speaking, is a normal markets rallying we had the COVID crash, which was obviously a very big deal, right? But it was relatively brief, right? And the term structure is way lower in front. Um, there it's showing, you know, 12 on average, but that's including like the COVID period, right? The sort of normal state in quiet markets now is short dated S&P vol is seven or eight. And then extremely steep out the term structure and then, you know, a little bit flatter out in the back, right? And it's just a massive rotation of the whole term structure relative to what option markets used to look like. And everybody goes and looks at these 30 or 40 year back tests that the consultants bring them or the asset managers bring them or whatever of like what option selling used to look like back when nobody sold options <laughs> on, the, on the blue in, in short dated in the, in the blue line there. They like look, oh, look at this great volatility risk premium. Um, but that's not, but then we just changed the price, right? Because then we brought large public pension funds, meaningful allocations to short dated call overwriting and cash secured put selling and so forth. And we dramatically rotated the term structure and steepened everything. And people are selling short dated calls at five vol, right? It's just a different world. And you can see that intermediate input as opposed to, again, in some of the Delta one factor investing where you you know, you can see the returns and you can argue about it and you can try like AQR does some stuff about looking at the valuation of different factors and trying to see if that's changed, but it's harder here. You can just literally see the price. And even though we've seen these um, selling volatility blow up once or twice in the last few years, are we still seeing the large institutions continue to, to practice this? Sure. I mean, selling volatility is sort of almost a word. No, that's it's so broad that it always gets massively misused, right? Like people blew up doing wild over leveraged tail risk selling. Nobody blew up doing call overwriting, <laughs> right? Um, I mean, call overwriting programs are just another line item in a public pensions, you know, 50 line item thing that like kind of under has been underperforming what they've been told that it should perform for the last seven or eight years. But like that's, you know, it doesn't, it's not, it's a very unrisky thing, right? It's just, uh, it's just equities with less upside. Yeah, I would just say like the blow up, which isn't really a blow up, is really the fact that market may sell out a lot. You restrike your option. The market then rebounds swiftly, much more swiftly of current day than historically speaking. The old saying was the market takes the elevator down and the stairs back up. And today it just it seems to be the elevator both ways. Right. So you're capping your upside as the market sells off. You restrike your options, potentially. Um, market rallies back, and you're capping your upside. Um, but there's certainly no like blow-up risk. So maybe I'm just living in an echo chamber, but I feel like there's an increasing awareness, not only of, of what's happening in the volatility derivatives complex, but potential implications for reflexivity in, in the market itself, um, a lot of people talking about things like GEX and, and pinning and that sort of effect seems to be much more prevalent. Um, but also just, it seems like more people are aware that, you know, selling calls, for example, that, that volatility risk premium may not be actually in practice anymore as wide as it was historically in these wonderful back tests. 
you know, as you guys are going out there and talking to institutions, how is that story resonating with them? I would have to imagine for those institutions that have adopted these types and styles of strategies, even if it's just selling some upside calls, it's, it's got to be a wake-up call to them. I would say, that, I mean, there's really bifurcation, right? I mean, sophisticated institutions that have um, people who have worked in the derivative space before um, are, understand all this and are, are quite aware of it, right? Um, but those usually aren't the institutions that have those kind of mandates in the first place or have those kind of programs, right? Um, it's much more, you can't underestimate the um, pension fund consultant pension, you know, academic white paper, exchange white paper complex of decision making, right? Which is, we look at a, f- you know, we look, the pension fund consultants really advise very quite heavily, right? Uh, in terms of what does it make sense to be doing? And how should you think about these things? You know, public pensions are understaffed and underpaid and have a hard time really having the staff, the, you know, the, the analytical capabilities internally to investigate these kind of things, right? So they largely adopt the kind of decisions that, that, um, that the consultants push. Yeah. I think really the punchline is, you know, like when you think about option strategies at the index level, certainly options have become steadily less expensive over time. Uh, That's a nice way of putting it. Uh, So if you're selling those, you're obviously bringing them less premium, but uh, I mean, things ebb and flow, just like with any risk premium that will, you know, rise and fall. Uh, We just happen to be in a very compressed, level of risk premium for specifically volatility risk premium the BRP today. And especially again at the at the front of the curve is what, what, what we're talking about. Correct. Which is typically where your benchmarky oriented call right programs are gonna go sell sell one month twenty-five delta puts or two month twenty-five delta puts or something like that, right? Um, re- related skew is also pretty high. Now that does come and go. Uh, that I think partly also is a is is a result of a fairly persistent wave of, of hedging by a lot of different categories of investors this last six months to a year with markets pushing new highs and people feeling really good about their gains, but less certain about the market environment going forward and so forth. But, you know, skew is extremely steep. So I think people have this sense of, right, they look at the VIX and they say, oh, vol is really high. Like, haven't you seen the VIX? It's 18 or it's 17 or it's, I mean, that used to be like a when people anchor on the last five years, other than COVID, they almost think of that as like a stress level, right? Um, so, so you've got so these these kind of strategies must make sense. Um, but again, sort of short dated S and P near the money vol or upside vol might be five or six, right? right? So the the thing that has definitely been true post COVID has been uh, the wings have been expensive, right? VIX is is actually S and P variance, right? It's not at the money vol. Uh, and variance is something that uh, is like a you know thermonuclear bomb when you sell it or whatever, right? It's um, it most of the time you make a little more money selling variance than you would selling at the money, except for once every five or ten years when things go really wrong and you lose and you have a squared term in your in your negative PL, right? And you just blow up. And the supply of short term variance has totally stopped, right? No one can sell one month one month variance anymore. And so the price and so the level of the VIX as compared to say at the money ball is much higher, might be five or six points higher, which historically would be very, very elevated again, because it's the price of the wings that's expensive, that's expensive, not the right. you know, short data at the money ball. Right. I'd be curious. Um, you know, one of the, I feel like narratives that came out of the last year 
and, and perhaps shame on me because I kind of pushed this in my liquidity cascades paper as well, though I don't think I have that much influence, has been the sort of tail wagging the dog narrative around markets, both in the individual stock complex as well as at the index level, right? So not to name names, but Jem Carson, for example, has been on Twitter very prominently discussing how Vanna flows or, and, and, and Gamma is highly influential in short-term you know, impact on the market and forecasting key market levels. There's other people who are saying, no, that's not true whatsoever. You know, there is no tail wagging the dog. Curious as to where you sort of come down on the, it's all derivatives and has always been derivatives moving the market and no derivatives aren't having an impact. You know, where are you sort of on the spectrum? I mean, certainly somewhere in between, and that's not probably, I think so is everybody, uh, well, well, one way or another, right? I mean, a great example, I mean, I think I, I tweeted on, was it uh, was it Monday, the day that we had the, the decent-sized, uh, the last decent-sized sell-off? Um, something about the amount, you know, the market was very long gamma, we're very long gamma, right? We're, the, we're the, always the same way as the dealer community and uh in uh, in long short dated gamma on the back of all this overriding flow, you know we were going to have a lot to buy. So my sense was like, I, you know, I don't know how we have a big sell off right here um, from uh, whatever exactly is going on. And then go ahead, we went down two point one percent, right? Even then, we you know had to buy a lot of equities that day to just get back to flat, right? But obviously, like if there's really big fundamentally motivated selling or whatever it is, you know, macro guys were out dumping tech exposure on the back of rates rallying. Like, you know, if there's really large selling or buying on a net basis by the investor community, of course, that's going to be much bigger than whatever's going on in derivatives markets, right? But, um, but certainly in uh, certainly on the margin, um, the, the positioning in der- of net positioning that has to be hedged in derivatives markets can, can absolutely be impactful. You know, there's pro- maybe, maybe there were, and you have to have your models and come up with these kind of things, right? But maybe on that day, there, maybe there was $50 billion of stock buying by dynamic hedgers who were long gamma, right? That's a lot. And if, but if the, uh, uh, clearly, clearly you can still make markets go down 2%, even with $50 billion of, of, uh, of hedging by folks like us. Right. So what other players, so we talked about JP Morgan is not the only player. What are the other big muscle movements in terms of like price insensitive, uh, you know, funds or structured products that that continue to provide unique opportunities or the willing losers that allow you to extract alpha? What are the other areas that you're seeing? Sure. So certainly the whole universe of short dated price insensitive option selling is, is one big one. Right. And that's um, many, many different players you think of uh, who are, who are the end users. I mean, a lot of those kind of programs go through the parametrics and Newberger Berman's and, and so forth of the world um, and, uh, and Wells Fargo asset management and so forth. The, at the, at the long end of the curve, you typically have a structured product selling uh, volatility selling, which, historically was more of a European story and an Asian story. And the last few years has become um, a U.S. story in equal size. So for the first time this year, um, U.S. issued uh, structured products linked to U.S. underlyings or are bigger than the South Korean market, which historically has been the biggest market in the world for, for structured products. And these are um, about like these structured products are obviously a reaction to the COVID crash and providing some sort of guarantee and some upside with some complexity around it. 
so yeah, your typical structured products these days that retail trades are um, are what are called reverse auto callable notes. So they're they're the thing that retail loves is you get a coupon and it's high, right? So it's I put my money down and I'm going to get an eight percent return if everything goes right. And the problem is, well, what, what what if everything doesn't go right, right? But typically, typically what'll be involved is you get that return unless or until any one of several different stocks or equity indices in a basket goes down enough. And if that happens, sorry, you just lose 30% or 40% or, or whatever it is, right? So it's selling of long-term crash risk for a coupon. In the old days, there were principal protected notes, um, but that, uh, that was a high interest rates world. That's how you synthesize right. a principal protected note, right? In a low interest rates world, you, sell, you have to sell a ball. Right, with a zero coupon bond and you had some space to work with it, but exactly. no longer the case, right? That's crazy that they, they come back. I honestly thought 10 years ago that they were a dead industry. Now we have the U.S. leading yep. the market. Not in, not in the least, right? And that stuff and keeps the, growing. And the, the sad part is that I think it's, what percentage of that is retail versus institutional? It feels like it's a very retail focus. Oh, it's a retail. It's a, it's a retail and private bank high net worth kind of market. I mean, if you go sit down, you know, if you if you are someone with $10 million and who sits down with your financial advisor, they'll probably pitch you some of them. Um, uh, and if you're certainly in, and especially in Europe and Asia, but increasingly in the U S you know, periodically my friends will call me and say, I know you hate these, but look, can I send you a term sheet that my guy just showed me for like an Apple and Tesla and Netflix note? And it pays 12% and it looks really good. Rodriguez. Never underestimate I mean, if the advisor the doesn't understand it. Certainly, the client doesn't understand it. Is it's it's, it's uh, Rodrigo? Wild. You and I work with a lot of advisors that oh God, that man. get the JP Morgan sheets. You know, I, I, I'm starting to find. I'm starting to realize that actually. So yeah, this is a, why I'm, I've been doing advisors. You and I, but I know both of us work with. <laughs> they've sent me the sheets to ask me about them. Do I have permission to completely change the subject here? Because I want to go into the <laughs> whole absolutely. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Yeah. I know there's a bunch of questions I'm seeing these. I'm going to try to get to them a little bit later, but I want to totally change the subject here. Ben, you mentioned QVR just past four years, turning on four years now. That sounds right. August. Um, why in the world did you decide to do this to yourself and launch a fund? As, as someone who has done this, I, it's not something I would wish on my worst enemies. It's horrible. What, what made you pursue this and what gave you the confidence it was going to work? So... Good question. Uh, it, it's certainly the kind of thing that's a lot of work and a long road and, and all of that. Um, ultimately, um, there's obviously different routes that one can go um, to start a business like this. We had the backing of my best relationship for a long time, a very large and very sophisticated uh, institutional asset owner. Um, and so at, at that point, it was not a... Um, it's still a startup-y kind of exercise, right? But it's very different than like a bootstraps, you know, two guys in a garage type of thing, right? So we had a institutional scale business day one that was break that was break even on a cash flow basis and and was totally fine. Um, I think it's a very different proposition to do the thing where it's like a year, you know, I'm going to start my own firm and I've got you know a couple hundred thousand bucks and I'm going to hit up my buddies and I'm going to see if we can put up good numbers for seven years and try to try to, you know, turn this into a, a, a dream thing, right? and some gumption. Yeah. yeah the, the, those are two very different paths. Um, so I think that, you know, in, in my case, and this is, it's not always the way these things work. It really depends, right? If you're a long short equity manager, it's much more plausible that you could scrape together five or 10 million bucks between different types of, of relationships. And you could, 
keep an incredibly low cost structure just yourself or whatever it is for for three years or five years and then get some people interested right um, this is not a business that works like that this is a, a infrastructure heavy scale intensive business where you need um, you need to be executing significant enough volume to have the best clearing relationships and you need very material technology and all this kind of stuff right so it's not it's it's the kind of thing that only really works um, as a I think from, from, from my perspective, I'm sure there are people who disagree, but from my perspective, it's, it's very hard to do outside of this context. Well, you gave me a perfect layup there. I'm going to keep going, Rodrigo, and then I'll turn it over to you because I want to talk about the organizational alpha side of this. Mm -hmm. You're talking about the infrastructure and technology. Curious as to your thoughts, day one for a business like yours, what is sort of the necessary table stakes to even enter the game and have a reasonable shot of being successful? Um, it really depends on, you know, what you're doing and at what, uh, what really matters is, is probably revenue more than AUM per se. Right. But, uh, you know, we were around a hundred million at, uh, initially and, you know, you can run a business like this at that, at that stage where you have kind of one client and you're not doing any kind of marketing and you're on a ground up what do you really need and what don't you need kind of basis? Like you can run that kind of thing for a million dollars a year, right? You need a million dollars a year of fixed, of fixed revenue. But what about from like a technology perspective? Yeah. Like what do you, what do you day one starts assets hit, you're starting to get the revenue. What are you building with your blank canvas in front of you? Sure. Uber yeah. So, and, 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 and all that, all that happened before, all that happened before, obviously, because part of the, part of the thing with, um, you know, big boy institutional due diligence is that they don't do that. Uh, and you right, say, right. I promise, I promise I'll build it. Um, right. So that's <laughs> what I was on. I was on non-compete for all of 2016, you know, doing that. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, think of, think of, you know, it depends on exactly what space you're in, but, but for someone like us, you know, you need a, a proper, um, full historical and real-time data environment for dealing with options and derivatives across the asset classes that you're that you're involved in right and you need the uh, the risks you know the risk capabilities and the position management capabilities and the execution capabilities associated with that right so there's certain things that you can buy right you don't you know you always buy um what people usually call an oms or an order management system whether or not it actually manages your orders, right? So, uh, um, you know, a Bloomberg game or an Ezcastle or whatever it is, uh, it has a bunch of embedded accounting functionality. Right? So those kind of things, you know, like your accounting systems, right? You're, you're picking things that, that are going to work with your other systems as well as you can, and you're buying that. Um, but all of your research and data type of, of infrastructure, that's really, you know, what you do as a manager. And there aren't any kind of, you know, you're choosing vendors for data and so forth, right? But... Um, there's not going to be any any kind of prepackaged analytics solutions that make sense for someone who do, really what you do is very specific, very bespoke um, strategy work in in the space, right? And so all of our all of our infrastructures in Amazon, you have big fast databases, and you have you know big networks of compute capabilities that can spin up as as needed, and you have you know your end big end of day processes and their whole dependency tree and you have your intraday environment that's updating all of your all of your research and all of your signals and all of your risk components right and that if that's not you don't pass institutional diligence until that's all there and can be demoed live and works and that's all built in-house by like you're all developing it in-house 
Uh, is it like yeah. a you programmer, uh, Ben? Or yeah, do you have- the whole okay. the entire front office team? So we now have a head of technology also, but we're all programmers. Right. Sorry, Scott, I interrupted you. I would just I was just going to drive home the point. Like, obviously, you buy what you don't want to build, right? Like, we're not going to build an accounting system or, or whatever. But the unique thing about, I think, about QBR was that, you know, Ben's been managing this set of strategies for a very long time. And it was, okay, I have a blank canvas. How do I, you know, how does, you know, Ben want to build, you know, the, his infrastructure from a risk management perspective, from a trade implementation perspective, portfolio management perspective from the ground up and not try to fit what he's doing into a prepackaged system. And I think that was the biggest, um, one of the, I think a big differentiating factor for that technology, you know, step forward. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, no, that's a very good point. I mean, in some sense, some version of this infrastructure has been built and rebuilt over the years. Right. And, and it sounds painful to say like, Oh, you, you know, you rebuild it, but actually, you know, it's a, it's a natural evolution. Right. And in this context, especially this time around, you know, you can build it much, much better, you know, 10, 10, 12 years ago, doing this stuff, you had server rooms, you were writing C sharp code and reinventing the wheel across all kinds of stuff. Cause there wasn't really good open source. Right. And you had just much less of the, the world that venture capitalists have wonderfully subsidized, you know, small technology companies on, providing all of these, you know, free or very cheap resources and the Amazon cloud and so forth. Right. So it's a great environment to be able to revisit. How would I do this better? Um, and yeah, uh, with, it, with, with better or, you know, more, you said you code in Python or a lot of what know, we do. Is there's, other co- there's, there's just better code that you can do. Uh, we've done it over and over again, where you have the option of, of having this, You've patched up the old infrastructure so many times that to fix it That's the way right. you want to requires it's a massive technical debt, and you just gotta yep. you can scratch and rebuild with better code, you know, better understanding of what you want to get out of it, and, and just a much more streamlined yeah. option for for sure. Yeah, what I would say, I guess, you know, having a big investor allowed you to take your time to do that right. Yeah, I mean, our uh, I think we hear a lot of times big legacy well-known managers who talk about how their technology is their adva- is a big, big proprietary advantage. And then you actually talk to the people who work there, like the PMs and they're like, Oh my God, our booking system was like written in Fortran in 1969. And it's like, you have to like telnet into the thing and you have to like, and it's just a total disaster. And there's one Fortran like uh, <laughs> developer that charges totally. an insane amount of money to fix it. Right. Yeah. So, like, I don't like, think I've heard the word telnet since 2002, Ben. <laughs> 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 you really pulled that one out. Exactly. So like, you, you know, know, there's really, it, it's very, very difficult in large organizations with legacy, all the legacy business and technology issues. Um, those get very complex and it's very, very hard ultimately to keep them fresh. So, you know, the other thing is data management, right? We run, we, we very much shied away from options-based uh, trading because it, it, it is, when you're dealing with futures, is very linear, right? You know exactly what you're getting. You have X amount of data. You need to clean it up. You need to fix the roles and so on and so forth. But options trading has so many levers that, you know, I imagine that cleaning up that data is 95% of yours and your developer's job. Is that, like, how do you, how do you guys manage uh, the data infrastructure? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's sort of the the running joke of like what people think you spend your time on as some fancy, you know, quant manager versus what you actually spend your time on, right? So, you know, clean, well-mapped security masters, (laughs) right? But when you've got different vendors and different, you know, S&P options, but there's SPX and there's SPXW and there's ISP and there's SPY and how are all these things related and how does this guy treat it versus that guy treat it and like making that totally ironclad. Yeah, that's like, it's a huge project, right? And, you know, same thing with um, ingesting, ingesting option prices, cleaning option prices, fitting vol surfaces um, in, a, in a robust way. Um, both for single names and index. So like, you know, those are, those are very, very large scale projects. Again, you like, it's not the first, our, our first rodeo or anything. Right. So we, um, but uh, you, that's a huge percent of the time historically that was, you know, spent building a lot of that stuff. Now, hopefully once you've done a good job of that, you still have to improve it on the margin and it still takes time. Right. But like, it's not on a forward looking basis as big of a time sink, but then, you know, you add, you want to do futures options and now you have a whole new project because Mm -hmm. some of it's the same and some of it's different. So that's just the nature of the beast. And, and by the way, it's this, I think it seems sort of obvious, but a lot of the time, um, you know, there's, there's the legacy volatility and derivatives managers world, which I came from originally, right. Where, you know, what we used to do and what a lot of guys still do, right. Is they trade, OTC, vol swaps or VAR swaps with brokers. Um, they sit there on a Bloomberg and they have their Bloomberg chat and they have Excel and that's kind of what they do. I, and we did more quantitative stuff than that. And we wrote a lot of code back in the day and everything. But like you didn't have to worry about fixed strike options and the path dependence of fixed strike options and the complexity of the universe of fixed strike options. And you didn't fit, have to deal with fitting vol surfaces and you didn't really have to deal with like real time data and all this stuff. And like that world um, you know, there was lots of interesting things to do back in the day when it was very easy to trade a vol swap in big size by quoting a dozen banks and taking down the guy who was at mid. Um, that world is gone, right? That was a different world that that existed because banks were taking huge amounts of risk and were super aggressive and there was super profitable, uh, you know, tra- uh, business with asset managers and with, uh, with the broader franchise. Now we live in like a post Dodd-Frank post Basel three world with super tight risk control and banks just can't and won't do any of that. Right. Markets are super wide. Half of the guys won't even quote the trade. The sizes are tiny, but but exchange volumes are really high, right? And the world in equities especially has really migrated to, to lit exchanges and, and there's a ton to do. That's a very hard transition to make, right? Because you've gone from having your Picking trader... Phone. Yeah, having your trader click the blast button on Bloomberg chat and blast out a dozen quote requests, stick them into the spreadsheet, find the, low, you know, the lowest offer, lift it, check the term sheet. It wasn't, you know, there's lots of things you have to do right, but it's just a very, very different skill set, right? Versus building large technology infrastructures to be able to handle this stuff in real time, be able to manage 20,000 option line items and the dynamic risk associated with that and the dynamic uh, path dependence of the portfolio and its risk. And what do you have to do every day to manage the portfolio versus like, I don't know, I have a, a vol swap and it's just, you know, it's going to, it's going to realize and then right. I'm going to get the, get the realized vol, right? All right. Go ahead, Corey. I was just going to ask, you know, one of the things that I hear over and over again is there's not a lot of edge necessarily in having a better vault surface model. There's certainly negative alpha in having a really bad model, but having a, a, a much better model doesn't necessarily give you a positive edge. 
curious as to your take, like how much edge can be found in having a better technology stack than your competitors and being able to get better real-time updates or better insight into the risk that you're running? I think the, the way to think about it is, so first of all, it depends on, right, diff- on what your business model is and what your strategies are, right? So there are market, ma- right? If you're a market maker, the only thing that matters is having a really, really, really good ball surface, never being wrong and being incredibly fast and being, you know, really good at differentiating flow types and thinking about at a hedge and so forth, right? Um, if you are a lower frequency buy side strategy person who is thinking about dislocations in the market, where they come from, what the end user flows are, how they're creating opportunities, how to structure trades and so forth, right? It's a very different set of problems you're working with. Um, You need to have really good execution technology to minimize transaction costs and so forth. But like your sensitivity to like a little wiggle someplace in the vol surface is lower, right? Because if, if you're a market maker that has a little wiggle someplace in the vol surface, you're going to be trading with Citadel securities all day and they're going to be in every trade you're going to be losing money on, right? Um, in, in the case of someone like us, right? The important thing is there's no, you know, people like us don't make money because we know this one formula. That's this really secret formula. And like, we figured it out and nobody else knows. And like, if they knew it would be really bad. And like, we go out and we see the thing that's too cheap and we buy it. Right. It's like a whole back to front process of understanding, you know, from a starting point, you know, what types of dislocations there are in the market in the areas that we focus on that we're good at thinking about and how to track those and how to measure those and how to do the discipline, the historical research around those and how to structure trades around those and then how to actually execute and implement those trades, how to control the risk, how to put a bunch of strategies together, right? And it's the quality of every step of that process and being reasonably good at every step of that process. uh, That's important, right? So like, for example, if you have a lot of the, those things as part of your process, but um, by the way, you don't have particularly good execution. You just call, call a broker to shop around the orders. Then you're not going to have a, a firm that works, right? Because you're going to be paying a bunch of spread on all of these trades and your, and your returns are going to you're, you're be terrible in this environment. Because in the old days, actually, like you could call a broker and they could comp out some guys and they could get it done. And that used to work. Now being a liquidity taker doesn't really work. You, you know, you need to be able to work into positions and out of positions in a really efficient way. Right. Um, But same thing with, you know, if your research infrastructure is really terrible and you're not good at, you have this idea of like what the opportunities are, but you can't really measure it. You can't really test things historically. You can't really understand how to hedge it. You don't understand, you know, all these kind of things. So again, every piece of that puzzle needs to be, needs to be reasonably good. All right, so let's get into, you've built the infrastructure, you've kind of built it in a way that makes sense for you and your and what you're good at. Uh, you launched a fund. There's so many areas you can tackle because you also do consulting. What, what is it that you're good at and what does your fund do for people? Well, the, so we have an absolute return fund, right? That's a big part of the business. And absolute return is all about understanding dislocations in the marketplace and creating market neutral trades around them in a return stream that doesn't make or lose money based on whether the market goes up or down. Right. And that's one big part of the business. I mean, we also given the infrastructure that we have as part of this business, it's very easy for us also to work with big institutional clients who want to do uh, hedge overlays in their portfolios, for example. Right. And it's not a consulting business. It's a, you know, we, 
we manage uh, you know large pools of assets in hedging overlay programs in funds of one that we design for institutions, right? Um, leveraging the same set of skills and knowledge and option markets in the same infrastructure, um, but solve different problems for, for different kinds of investors, right? So I think our view, generally, when you have a business like this, you have different choices as you, as you grow the business, right? I think that one thing you see in the derivative space is sometimes organizations take those absolute return programs in hedge funds and they keep raising more and more and more money into those programs. But it's really a pretty niche business, right? And it's a business that really, from our perspective, it's really important to not be overscaled to the point where you can be nimble, right? Deriv- derivatives markets dislocations come and go. They, um, flows come and go. You don't, the, the, this is not a business where you end up in just systematic strategies based on some 40 year back test that you always do, right? You want to be, you will be in a big trade. We'll love it. Three weeks later, we'll be totally out of it in the other way. Right. And if you're, and if you're too big, you can't do that. So part of what you want to do is rather than scaling just by making the core absolute return strategies bigger, you want to find synergies that use all the same skills and infrastructure, um, but do different things that solve different problems for other kinds of people. So on that absolute return style strategy, I mean, are there times where you're just straight on the sidelines where there's no interesting opportunities for you and you're not deploying capital or is there always sort of with the markets the way they are, some sort of opportunity available to you typically? I, I mean, I suppose that would be hypothetically possible. I've never been in that kind of environment. I mean, think of, you know, we have a wide range of different strategies that are recurring thematic strategies where there's some type of dislocation that either is often there uh, over time in some size or where it's there sometimes. And across enough strategies, you know, we're always going to have two or three or four things going on at a, at a point in time that are interesting. Sometimes there'll be more, sometimes there'll be less. Um, but yeah, if, if literally we just thought there was absolutely nothing to do in the market, like we wouldn't have any positions on it. it that's it. I think probably very, very rare kind of situation though. I have to imagine that these are difficult strategies to communicate and for a lot of institutions to understand. Scott, I'd be really curious to get your thoughts on like, what do you think the most misunderstood thing about what you do is? Uh, it's a good question. So uh, misunderstood. I mean, if we were to go down, if we were to go down to the strategy level, I think, you know, if you start getting, to, getting into things like maybe dispersion, if there's, you know, there's a lot of moving parts, you know, we, we at times may be long or short, for example, um, maybe some of the strategies that are a little less line item intensive, such as maybe just uh, European dividends or say trading volatility versus beta, you know, it's fairly straightforward. Um, but I think what we've seen over the past, you know, 10, 15 years is really, it's quite actually quite amazing, right? When you think about where we are today, where you have people like, literally trading options from their iPhones to where we were 15 years ago, where it was like some ball selling strategies such as covered calls or, um, or pure ball selling strategies such as using variant swaps. That was pretty fringy stuff, right? For like the U S pension and maybe endowment foundation community versus where we are 
today. So I think the education level is way ahead of where it was of years past. But still, you know, you have to, um, most asset allocators don't necessarily want to get down into the weeds about specific, you know, line item positionings and, and talk about Greeks and, and stuff like this, right? The bigger asset management community, all they talk about is outcome-oriented investing and so on and so forth. So I think there's that fine line where you really have to create nice, digestible content depending on your core audience um, or, or, excuse me, depending on the, you know, the, the delivering it to the broad audience, but be able to go deep for those guys who truly understand and perhaps were even in the business at one point on the, on the trading side. And I think, you know, that good content, you know, the consistency of delivering good market color within the space and that transparency and honesty, you know, and is, is what it takes. And then when they finally do come to potentially make an allocation in the space, it's like, Oh yeah, those guys at QBR, you know, they've been, they've been sending us stuff every quarter for the past, you know, year or two years. And it's, it's been, it's been really good, straightforward and interesting. And I think my board or my trustees would actually understand the way that they talk about it. Like, I think that's the key difference today. So, so, so I'm just uh, curious because you guys are clearly systematic, all right? You 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 got uh, developers, you got quant, use a lot of numbers, but you're not you're systematic, but you're not a quant, right? There's you talked about uh, finding opportunities as they arise. You might be long one day, short one day. So being transparent is actually not detrimental to you because you're not showing an algo that people may may or may not be able to copy it really continues to be your expertise over the years that uh, that help you get that that unique pnl but how do you differentiate between like what part of what you do is systematic and what part of you is um is you know good old-fashioned trader so nothing, every, that's a spectrum, right? Um, I don't think of, the, think of at one end of the spectrum, you have kind of purely gut feel based discretionary trading or something, right? And the other end of the spectrum, you have fully automated uh, signals, data and trading and transactions, right? Uh, and we're probably a seven out of 10 on that spectrum or, or something, right? Where we have a set of recurring strategy themes where each one is its own, unique strategy bottom up that reflects some kind of dislocation or market relationship that we understand and has its whole research and technology base behind it. Right. And then we have a framework for um, how to, in a standardized way, compare the risk reward opportunities available across those strategies and how to, how to do portfolio construction on the back of uh, the strength of signals uh, and so forth. Nothing in um nothing in it, nothing that we do flows straight through into any kind of automated execution. Uh, we have a lot of auto execution automation tools to help with implementing a decision once a decision is made. Right. But um, generally speaking, I think the reason you don't ever see full automation in the broad based derivative space. I mean, data is too noisy. Um, you know, the, there's too many dimensions of uncertainty. Right. And, you really have to be able to stop and say, okay, our model really, really likes this trade right now um, based on X, Y, and Z. Well, X, I think actually is a little bit noisy. Why? There's kind of a regime change going on here. And I think there's a good reason for why. And 
you know, really, I don't like, I really, I think the, you know, the expected return is significantly lower than like the model seems to think. And if, and not, um, not running these kind of strategies in that way, I think just in, leads very quickly to, to potential uh, big disaster. And, you know, there's all kinds of stories that one can tell you about that. But I would, importantly, though, I would, um, I think people sometimes confuse, you know, quant and systematic got, get thrown around a, a, a lot, right? And what does that really mean? Um, dynamic and quant and dynamic and systematic are fully compatible, right? Um, something does not have to be, I do the same trade every day because of a 40-year backtest or something to be quantitative or to be systematic, right? You can be very systematic about something where a lot of the time you have no trade and then you have a trade on sometimes, right? But, you know, in a manner that reflects a certain data generating process about, about that, those decisions. So how do you handle new regimes, either regimes that are uh, so fundamentally chaotic, they're breaking all the risk metrics like a March 2020 regimes like, I don't know, oil trading negative or or even like as we entered post 2020, sort of the uh, call option spree of retail buyers, which I know you had a lot to say about, but correct me if I'm wrong, there's there's actually no trade you guys ended up implementing as it relates to that at least the last time I, I spoke to you on that subject, maybe it's changed. So how do you sort of think about, A, navigating when quant models maybe like just either aren't giving you right answers or, you know, the world is chaotic and, and the systems you've built aren't designed for that world or the world is fundamentally changing and there are new opportunities arriving and figuring out what sort of models you need to build for that? I think the world's always, always changing and that's kind of part of the whole point, right? Uh, what and the con and the conversation is about um, are there variables that were missing in how in how a strategy's model is set up right um, so for example um, think of like you know variance convexity basis got very expensive after covid um, and there are strategies that we have that that effectively trade a linear format of that variance convexity basis. And based on historical data up to that point, the way that our models were looking at things, you know, you would have wanted to bet very aggressively on convergence of those spreads. But you also knew because you hadn't had a convexity blowout like that really. I mean, 2008 in a way, but actually it wasn't the same. March 2020 was actually a much more severe convexity blowout than 2008. 2008 was a big crisis that kind of steam rolled on and got twice as bad every month. March 2020 was like a this month volatility is 10 times higher than last month, right? And those are two very different things. As a result, the world lost all of the sellers of tail convexity and you know they're not coming back soon, right? And so there's just no reason to think that your model would be right anymore for uh, for how to measure, you know, the, the expected returns of some kind of, of, of uh, where should VIX futures trade relative to S&P at the money forward. What, what for the example, fair right? convergence back would be. Exactly, exactly. So you think, okay, maybe in, in, in five years, you think you have, you know, where it's going to go to, or even two years, but, but not in two weeks, right? Whereas if, um, and so you have to stop and think about that, and you have to think about 
okay, we need to probably look back and put more weight on actually the term structure of variance basis and where spot variance basis is, because that really matters a lot. And like, go through and really think about things that maybe didn't matter as much before, or you didn't realize how much they matter because you weren't, because, uh, but that have since become much more salient, right? So it drives right. sort of re-engineering. Very, it would be very rare that it's just like, um, you know, nothing makes sense. I mean, you know, we'll have times like after March, 2020, we absolutely just, there were some trades that looked good that we just didn't do during March of 2020, right? Because a period that crazy, you know, you're, you're working a lot, you're doing a lot of things, your attention is getting pulled in a lot of different directions, you're trading all day, and you know that there's a value to having, you know, focus all efforts on the highest risk reward and highest ratio of risk of reward to complexity, um, opportunities, right? Don't go out and do things where now I need to trade a ton of different option line items and put on this very nuanced trade that I have to leg into because in this environment, that's going to be extra hard. And then every day I'm going to have to pay attention to it and maybe miss this other thing. Right. And so, you know, you're, and, and so, and are you going back and rewriting your whole portfolio construction models to do that? No, you're just, you're just not doing that trade. That's very easy, not easy to do. Yeah. So let me continue down the path of understanding your, where you grab your PL from. Adam um, actually sent in a question. Approximately what proportion of your PL is derived from what might be described as quasi arbitrage or casual trades versus taking directional vol or delta risk? You mean causal trades? Right. I was like casual trades. <laughs> just casual sling. Don't ask Vega. a Peruvian with it with ESL <laughs> to read some, some English in, in a live show, please. There you go. So we take no directional risk at all. Full stop. Um, okay. Arbitrage is a very strong word. I would I would don't think of anything that we do as 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 arbitrage. Um, but we do absolute return. Right. So relative value, market neutral. Correct. Rod, it's cool. I'd love to grab another question here that came up. It's going rewinding back to some of the earliest discussion we had. But um, Peter Van Amsen was asking about with the current term structure of, say, uh, VIX, you know, the old, you know, pre-2020 consultant argument may have been there was a volatility risk premium you could harvest. Is there now the potential for an emergence of a sort of volatility term premium that can be harvested? There's always always been a volatility term premium, right? So and so the just to back up a step, right? A lot of people will come with the question, they'll say, well, volatility risk premium looks kind of low in the front of the curve. So why don't you so say the front of the curve is 10, but this point, you know, four years out the curve is 20. So isn't volatility risk premium at you know the four-year point uh, if if realized is eight, isn't it 12 points? Right. And what I will and what I think any any vol guy will say is or vol girl will say is you know, volatility risk premium um, or in terms of uh, is a word people throw around a lot. Right. There's a risk premium for short term implied versus realized. Right. Uh, and that's a risk that you can generate trading short term options and delta hedging and exposure to short term options. Any when you trade a longer term option. Right. The further out the curve you go the right gamma is fully fungible. You're just getting a smaller and smaller and smaller amount of gamma exposure, exposure to realized vol further out the curve. Uh, and more and more of your risk is driven by Vega risk, by changes in the implied volatility of the option. Right. And 
you can imagine you can create a forward volatility position, right? By buying longer dated, selling a little bit of shorter dated and actually having no gamma, no risk to realize volatility, only risk to implied volatility, right? And all of the, and of course, that's a directional risk factor. If I buy forward volatility, that's going to tend to go up when the market goes down and vice versa. So that's an exposure. It's going to have risk premium characteristics. It's not going to, that risk premium won't be reflected in implied versus realized by definition. It gets reflected in what's the shape of the curve relative to, uh, and how does that, and what does that turn into, uh, into peak carry PL over time, you know, if nothing happens or along different scenario paths, right? And so there, there is always ter- a term premium concept in, in ball markets. Term, there's different levels of term premium that you see in different market regimes. Depends on flows, who's buying or who's selling ball at different points in the in the term structure. That's the reason that in the normal state of affairs, term structures are upward sloping because that's how market charges you uh, carry cost to be long volatility, effectively hedging hedging a, a risk position. So your fund is an absolute return fund. I imagine in periods like March, it should do a a good job. But you also have um, funds or or other institutions that come to you explicitly for tail hedging. I, I, I understand. So what's the difference between providing an absolute return fund that possibly does well in that environment versus providing a pure tail hedge? Like how do you differentiate those two? Sure. So they're very different things, right? So absolute return, the point of absolute return is to take advantage of dislocations that exist in the market and try to generate returns over time and a return stream that's not correlated with the market, right? And in our case, we do, we, we make sure that we're not short convexity or short tail risk, um, but we won't necessarily be long it, right? And we're, and there's no directional risk to the market. It's not a long volatility product or short, you know, short the market product. If, if equities are down, 7% 7% in a month, I can't tell you what the PL is going to be with any kind of high confidence, right? Um, a, 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 typically, when a large asset owner is having a conversation about tail hedging, they're thinking about something very, very different than that, right? They're thinking, I own $10 billion of equities. What I'd really like to do is find a way to set aside a hedge budget of 1%, to cover theta costs and some potential Vega mark to market. If I have some options that go down and in exchange for that, try to get back some significant amount of the loss I might incur if the market's down 25 or 30 or 35 or 40 and know how much that slope, the slope of my protection is accelerating down there, know where I'm fully stopped out. And then think about how do I manage that over time? How do I rebalance that between that hedge exposure and my equity exposure, right? So that I'm generating a big pile of cash in an equity, in a sharp, big equity market sell-off to redeploy into, into equity markets, right? That's an extremely different conversation. And, and so the, the portfolios around that generally are fairly simple, right? You're, you're putting, lo- it's a long-term strategic program where you're, you're targeting certain convexity profiles and range of cost of carry, clearly very, you know, specifically defensive, um, always going to have some uncertainty about how does it perform in X scenario, but, um, a lot more specificity around that than you would from some absolute return product, right? That again, it isn't targeting any kind of particular convexity profile to underlying equity markets. Now, I would just add to that too, again, like Ben said, you know, we're using the same infrastructure, we're using this 
same trade implementation capabilities. This isn't something where, you know, a lot of overlay providers will say, okay, well, we put on a collar, if it's for collar, or we buy this put, or, you know, we put on this trade structure, and then they come back in a month and roll it, or they come back in a quarter and roll it. You know, what we're doing is something completely different. You know, we're looking at these portfolios every day. We might not trade them every day, but we certainly probably are every week, slowly rolling the exposures forward in bits and pieces, participating with the volumes on the exchange and never going, you know, never going out to market and trading, you know, thousands or tens of thousands of options, like, you know, all at the same time, you know, transaction costs are all obviously a very big deal, right. In it's, you know, in the solution space as well. Uh, so we approach it the same way as we would our absolute return portfolios. How are you thinking about that sort of triangle trade off of, the attachment point, sort of the cost and the basis risk that you can take when you're designing a tail hedge. I mean, is it really customized per institution as to the, you know, it, some say, hey, we really need the low cost, high convexity, so we're willing to take the basis risk. Others say, hey, we need protection at this particular attachment point to prevent any sort of, you know, future funding problems with our, our pension or our, our endowment. How's that sort of conversation work from the customization aspect? Sure. So uh, every, every client is absolutely different, but generally speaking, the key question is what's the shape of the convexity profile that a client really needs, right? Uh, it costs a lot more to have a hedge that is going to do really make a material offset, say down 15 or 20, as opposed to a hedge that's going to kick in later, but really make a lot of money down 30 or down 40, right? Um, and so that's going to be a big driver of that kind of the static cost of carry budget that, that somebody needs to have and that relative to Vega mark to market. Um, basis risk, um, the, that conversation, usually it depends on the underlying investor. Um, generally speaking, um, Doing doing trades that are longer dated and have more of a Vega component is going to have somewhat more basis risk uh, than shorter dated trades. Um, we te- you know we're, we're we're willing to work with people along some spectrum there. We tend to strongly discourage um, going out into cross asset. You know what about what about yen swap receiver swaptions to hedge equity markets? I think there there are good institutions that that pitch those kind of things and that show, well, look in August, 2011, you would have made X in this, you know, currency trade. Um, but when you look at the spread of the outcomes, it's extremely wide, right. Um, in it qualitatively, like in more of a systemic, like sovereign crisis or, or macro crisis, those things are somewhat more likely to work in something that's really an equity market led event. Um, they're much less likely to work. Like in 2018, we had a couple of pretty good market sell-offs that didn't really move cross-asset relationships at all, right? So we we tend to strongly discourage in like a direct hedging mandate where what you're really trying to do is provide a certain convexity profile. You just have no idea how um, very off-the-run cross-asset proxy type of hedges are going are gonna to perform in that environment. Same thing with like gold or gold ball or something like that, right? If you really have equity risk and you really want to hedge it in a reasonably precise way, you need to have optionality to what you own. I've always found it um, the most interesting part of tail hedging is when you actually get your payoff. 
and what do you do shortly thereafter, right? If you have a mandate where it's you are explicitly a tail hedger for my fund, my organization, and it pays you off at a certain point, how do you de- how do you decide to to start getting out of that trade? And then the second part of that is. Do you have the freedom, generally speaking, to just say, look, it, everything's expensive, take off the, the tail for the next six months, and then we can start getting back on? Or are you always mandated to continue to bleed as volatility collapses? This is all client decisions, right? So we're, we're, not, we're not sort of going out there and just doing stuff, right? Um, think of back, back in March 2020. Um, so it was an intelligent framework for this kind of thing. We'll have built into it in advance sets of parameters for discussion about the expectations shared between the manager and the client about what they want to do and how they want to manage a program, right? Including monetization and rebalancing. Um, but it also generally shouldn't be a really naive one, right? So if you look back at March, 2020, let's say you owned a bunch of long dated downside options that were making a lot of money back in March, 2020, one thing you could have done is go out into the market and try to sell those out and pick your points and maybe ladder down. Um, it turned out actually you would have done much worse doing that than just aggressively rebalancing and buying Delta against it, right? Because long dated vols never really went up that much. They went up, they went up a decent amount. They went up to like 30. We were moving 12% a day, right? And if you just came out and put on a big old Delta buy rebalance at the bottom as your, as your, uh, as your rebalance between your long equity portfolio and your tail hedge, um, then you in short order made a hundred percent on that. Right. Um, and actually, so having a, a thoughtfully put together framework in place ex ante is really important, right? So the client knows, uh, so you understand what the client wants to do, how they're thinking about it, but then having those conversations with the right balance of making sure the client's on board with what you're going to do and then doing that is, is really, is really important. Right. But in these kind of things, we're never just going out there as a manager in the way you are doing in an absolute return fund where it's, you, you know, where it's uh, QVR making decisions. Right. So I hate to do uh, this. I have to, I have to run to kindergarten pickup folks. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, I got one question for you, Ben. What this is, this is like, I know you're a huge Warhammer nerd. <laughs> uh, and I say that with the utmost respect, but I'm going to take it into my realm I got a question here from Brian Moriarty. If you were a, if you were playing D and D, what would your character be? D and D. Oh man, <laughs> it's been a while, but probably, probably like a, a dark elven mage of of some variety with lots of fireballs, things of that nature. <laughs> I think I think it speaks to the character. Speaks to you. I love Absolutely, it. guys. Ben, I appreciate it. For. Scott, thank you for your time, guys. Sorry to keep you so long. Thanks, guys. Um, good luck with your. What was it again? Celtic kindergarten, soccer. Kindergarten pickup on bike. Oh, yeah. Celtic soccer for. Uh, yeah, and for, you're going to, you're doing the Gaelic, kindergarten pickup on the bike. Corey. The Gaelic. That's right. Um, Appreciate the time, gentlemen. Thank you yeah, so much. Thank you all for, awesome. and thanks, Corey, for helping out. Thank you. That was an awesome discussion. Um, we'll have you back again in another six months, probably. A whole different Cheers. world, I'm sure. All right. Thanks, all. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts. We also encourage you to engage with us on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, 
we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again, and see you next time.